Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back, Jennifer. You're the first guest we've ever had come back to Angular Insights. So Gil and I are super excited to have you back. We had Jennifer, uh, she gave a talk back in 2020 when immigration status was crazy and there was COVID. And now that that is, um, you know, the situation has definitely changed a bit. We wanted to invite Jennifer back to talk about U.S. immigration best practices, specifically tailored to tech founders from Israel, from Europe, from all around the world. This should be relevant. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. And and uh, thanks for wearing our t-shirt. Jen and I go back a long time as I was thinking about setting up Angular. Jen was thinking about setting up Sheer Immigration. And I got to watch her build that business into what is clearly the best immigration law firm in, in Israel. And I would argue the best U.S. immigration law firm out there. We've used them for many companies um, that are not Israeli at all. If you haven't figured it out yet, she's an American who lives in Israel. And because the business is focused on getting founders into the U.S., it's really relevant for founders from anywhere. And so you've worked with us on Canadian founders, Israeli founders, a whole yeah. bunch of other founders. And thank you so much for doing this and for being part of our extended family. We're also proud to say, I think we're the only venture firm out there that has a U.S. immigration advisor as a member of our extended family. You have Carrie in the fund along with the other advisory partners. That's always been part of our vision was to help our companies succeed internationally. And we've always believed that that means succeeding in the U.S. And I'll start with a question, Jen, a general question, then we'll get into the deck and then we can follow up with more questions later. But maybe just to set the stage, we've always believed that founders moving to the U.S. is often part of the pathway to success for companies that want to go global if they're born outside the U.S. What has happened in, the, in just in the past few years there? What have you seen in terms of the trend? COVID, my perception was, at least in the companies that I was talking with, it had a chilling effect on people moving around. In fact, a lot of founders were like, oh, it's COVID. I'll just move back to Israel because it doesn't matter where I am. I'll move back to where I came from. You know, we had one founder move back to Finland. We had one founder move back to Israel. That was happening pretty commonly because people were just, there's no reason for me to be far away from family and friends. We're all remote anyway. And the number of founders that we saw that were moving to the US went down. I feel like that's coming back now. Is that your perception as well? Or is your perspective different? I absolutely think that it's made a comeback, but COVID obviously slowed things down. And this is sort of like, you know, the last session that we had was the height of the visa restrictions, the travel restrictions, uh, where people just, they could not get their work visas unless they met certain really narrow exceptions. Um, so we did our best to become experts in those exceptions to get people over there. There was a slowdown simply because you couldn't travel, but the people that really wanted to get there, they got there. They overcame those hurdles. And as soon as the administration changed, we saw just a real influx of more people, more founders wanting to get to the U.S. Their investors were sitting on their heads and, you know, it's just like, get over there. As we move farther away from COVID, we're seeing more and more. And we're also seeing an influx of founders that have been there for a few years on work visas and that they're wanting to stay in the U.S. So they're transitioning over to green cards. And a lot of them are also because of their like just wildly successful we're seeing this like cycle of move to the U.S. on your work visa, 
get a green card, an employment-based green card, exit, then you've got all these tax considerations and then wanting to actually give back the green card and come back to their home country. So it's an interesting life cycle and a trend that, that we've been seeing. Of course, there are those that want to continue on after they get the green card to citizenship, but we're seeing more people that are actually wanting to come back at the end of the day once they've had that ginormous success. Cool. We'll have a lot more questions later, but let's dive into it. It's a real privilege to have you. There's no one who knows this better. So rather than us ask you questions to start off, let's just give you the floor and please take us to the deck. I'd like to talk today. I want to give you guys just a brief overview of the different kinds of work visas that are relevant for founders. As I go through the different types of work visas, you'll notice that there are best practices and tips incorporated. So we're going to be able to cover those as we go. So well, before we talk about the different kinds of work visas that are out there for founders, I think it's important to just define who needs a work visa, because not everybody is actually relocating to the U.S. There are some people that are going back and forth for a period of time. And we also noticed that during the year before you actually decide to relocate, you might have gotten your first investment and you're needing to go over to the U.S. a lot to meet with investors, to meet with potential clients and strategic partners. There's just a lot of, of back and forth going on there. And it's important to know where the line is between, okay, I'm going on a business trip or this is actually productive work. So who needs a work visa? So anyone entering the U.S. to engage in productive work activities. Now, this is actually not a very simple point because the law itself governing what is a business trip, what is permissible as a business visitor, either through the visa waiver program or on a B visa, on a B1 tourist business, the business track of the tourist visa. It's just not exactly clear what that means. What is work? So I always say, follow the conferences and meetings rule. It's a hundred percent fine to go to the United States to attend meetings with investors, customers, employees, whatever, or to attend conferences. If you're planning on establishing an entity in the U.S. and working there, relocating eventually during this period of time beforehand, this like this year before you've got your work visa and you actually done the relocation, if you find yourself sitting at the company in the U.S and working and acting as the CEO or the CTO or whatever, then it's probably crossing the line into this is actual productive work and I, and I need a work visa. So that's a case by case thing. And always get advice about that if you're not sure about the particular activities. I hear this a lot from founders. It's like one of those like myths that just go around. But it's fine if I go to the U.S. on my tourist visa or the visa waiver program and I'm getting paid abroad and I'm not going to be there for very long. So that's not actually really relevant. You are not allowed to work if you are, are in the U.S. It doesn't matter where you're getting paid from, and it really doesn't matter how long you're there. So this is something to keep in mind. As I mentioned, business and conferences, all good. Visa waiver program, by the way, is for countries that participate in the program that allows people to enter the U.S. for up to 90 days for business or pleasure without applying for a visa. So this is something that probably a lot of our European founders have and founders from other countries. Israel does not have the visa waiver program available to it yet. That's in the works. It's a work in progress that's on hold for the moment for different political and security reasons. Or B1 visa, which is the business visitor trap of the tourist visa. You might, if you're traveling frequently to the United States for business trips, for doing things that are completely okay, going to meetings and going to conferences, not a problem. You still might encounter issues upon entry if you're going a lot and you're staying for longer periods of time. In a best case scenario, you'll be told, listen, you're coming too much and don't come back without a work visa. That'd be like the best case scenario. The worst case scenario would be you're denied entry to the United States and we don't want to get into that kind of a situation whatsoever for 
obvious reason, but one of those reasons is because it can have a negative impact on future visa applications and namely your work visa applications. Just really quickly, there's a work visa for short-term projects of up to six months. This is a scenario where you're just going for a project, you're not actually relocating. It might not be relevant for founders, but it might be relevant for employees of founders that you want to send over to the States for up to six months. These people, it's called B1 in lieu of H1B. So H1B is someone who needs an academic degree that relates to the position that they're going to be fulfilling in the U.S. And we'll talk more about the H1B in a different slide. So this is instead of an H-1B. So please give me a special annotated tourist visa instead of an H-1B. So like the H-1B, you need to have an academic degree that relates to the duties of the project, the temporary assignment in the U.S. It's totally temporary. It's up to six months. These visas are issued for about a year, and then it lets you to go in and out of the U.S. for up to six months in aggregate. It's kind of an obscure visa type that not a lot of people know about, but I wanted to throw it out there because it's very useful for those specific situations. How careful should founders be in terms of thinking about that sort of working in the U.S. rule? I mean, my, my expectation would be that most founders are traveling to this quite a bit before they move. If they're planning on moving, they're probably traveling there quite a bit. And realistically, it's probably a mix of like, yes, they're meeting customers. Yes, they're going to conferences. They're also probably meeting their own team members. They're also probably sitting in the office and doing email for at least an hour, maybe a lot more. How is that stuff assessed by the immigration authorities? How careful do people need to be when they think about whether or not they can do it on a business travel visa or a tourist visa or not? As I mentioned on, at the outset, the regulations for what is a business trip themselves are vague and ambiguous. It's like when in doubt, advise. So like I said, conferences and meetings are all good, but then what if it's training, for example, what if you're going to attend training or give a training? It just has to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Obviously, if the totality of the situation looks like you've been going every other week for the past year, you're sitting at the company, you've got a local U.S. phone number on your email signature and all kinds of things that point towards you're working there, I think that it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. So... How often yeah. do people get denied or like founders get denied entry? Because I can't imagine like flying 15 hours from Israel that's <laughs> like having to go back on a plane. Does that actually happen? It does actually happen. I've seen it a number of times. Usually there's a warning. There's a warning that says, hey, person, you've been coming here too often. What are you up to and what are you doing? They can be taken into secondary questioning. Most of the time they get out of it and they're not denied entry. Unless there's an assumption that they actually are or ha- are coming to engage in unauthorized work, in which case they'll get turned around and have a five-year bar. It's really extreme. And so most of the time there's a warning that just says, don't come back without a work visa. And guys, I'm advising you, I'm like flashing lights now telling you, if that happens to you, do not come back to the United States. I don't care what for a business trip before you have your work visa because you're flagged in CBP system and it will come up again. And the next time you might not be so lucky. So I want to move on to L1 intra-company transfers. This is probably, I would say, the best option for most founders. Now, there are other visa types that we're going to talk about, but part of the idea of this best practice is building a plan that's not just good for a founder's short-term goals, but that's also good for long-term goals. Like, what is the best option for me that's the most stable visa option, the most flexible visa option, and the option that allows me to get to the U.S. on day one, okay? after I literally just incorporated the U.S. entity and allows me to stay there for as long as I can 
And to transition to a green card, if that's something that's in the plans for me. That's why I like the L1. So an L1 is an intercompany transferee. So that means the companies can transfer managers, executives, or specialized knowledge people to from a foreign entity. Okay, so you need to have a foreign entity to a related entity in the U.S. So they have to have that particular legal relationship between the foreign entity and the U.S. entity, a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, or branch, which is just less, it's less common. Usually the situation with tech companies, from my experience, is parent subsidiary. It does not matter which company is a parent and which is a subsidiary, or if there was a little switch of those two, it's irrelevant. L1A is usually the route for founders because they are managers and executives. Specialized knowledge is usually like the tech people. So specialized knowledge of the company, technology, or product offering. So the person in question needs to have been employed at the foreign entity on a full-time and continuous basis for at least 12 consecutive months. So oftentimes we'll have a situation where the founder is on the foreign entity's payroll for exactly 12 months, and then they're like, I want to relocate now. So frequent business trips to the U.S. during that, if you're at that point where you have exactly 12 months, we need to look at that 12-month period and say, how much time during this 12 months, this qualifying 12-month period, has the founder actually been in the United States? So physically in the U.S., so for business trips or whatever. Okay, so let's say we're January 1st, 2023 to January 1st, 2024. During that time, the founder was in the United States for, I don't know, 30 days, let's say. So that means we need to wait another month at the tail end of this to have them have 365 days outside of the United States on the foreign payroll. Okay, so business trips, that's why I always ask founders during our initial call, how many times have you been in the U.S. or how much time have you been in the U.S. since you got on the foreign payroll, okay? And that's in a very annoying delay and they don't like it, but it is what it is. If you're missing one day towards that 365-day requirement, you'll get a request for evidence and have to withdraw the petition because you won't be able to meet the requirement. The L1 is appropriate for both established companies, okay? Companies that where the U.S. entity is incorporated and it's been doing business for a long time in the United States or for new offices, which is typically the situation with founders. What does that mean? We got our money from our investors. We set up our R&D abroad. We have employees. We've got our money. Now it's time to open the U.S. entity and start to, to activate it. So at that time, the U.S. entity is brand new. You might have no employees in the U.S. You might only have a few employees in the U.S. You might have no business activity at all. Another thing that is a lot of times, believe it or not, it's a go, no go when it comes to relocations for, for founders and their families is, does my spouse have the ability to work in the United States on the particular visa that I have? They'll receive a dependent visa. Spouses and children under 21 of L1 visa holders receive L2 visas. And as of uh, the past year, there's been a really wonderful development where L2 spouses are authorized to work incident to status. So that means get your visas, enter the U.S., and spouses can work without having to apply for a work permit, which is a huge change and, a, and an amazing one because it was taking a really, really long time to get those work permits for spouses. And it's a huge consideration for families, from my experience. Amazing. We actually have an audience question from Johannes about L1 visas. Sure. Hey there, this is Johannes. Um, what is she looking to establish an, uh, an entity in the U.S.? And one of the founders would move but all of the founders are working through what we call a management company in, in our country, in Belgium. And so we're not 
are on the payroll, but we work as, as subcontractors and we provide services to the company for over 12 months, full-time, et cetera. Does that qualify for L1? That's a great question. And we're actually going to cover that topic right now. Okay. Okay. Give me just a second and I'll be able to answer that question. So we talked about calculating the 12 months of employment. Now, the qualifying employment, Giannis's question, okay, does it work if we issue invoices versus being on the actual payroll? Excellent question. It does work. However, you basically have to have a CPA confirm that you have been serving as the EO, CTO, or whatever the position is on a full-time and continuous basis for that foreign entity for the right amount of time. It's always a little bit trickier when you're showing USCIS, which is really like a 1955 organization. It's like yesteryear. When you're giving them something that's not exactly what their checklist says. So the checklist says, I need pay stubs that show me that this person's been working for that period of time at the foreign entity. But it does work if you issue invoices, but you have to be exclusive and full-time. The CPS will be able to give you that letter. And we start with that. And then if USCIS starts asking, asking questions and asking for like more information about that, then we actually give the invoices and show the back-to-back payments and the founder's agreement and any other indication that were resolutions that this person is really just, they're working for that company. And this is just the technical thing that's probably just for tax purposes. So the answer on it is yes, it does work. I wanted to go over what the requirements are for a new office for O1 purposes. So a new office is a company that has been, so the U.S. office has been doing business in the United States for less than 12 months. Now, a lot of people ask me, okay, but um, we were incorporated like three years ago. That's fine, but you're still in new offices. You haven't actually been doing any business. So a lot of companies incorporate and they just let it, they let it sit around for whatever reason. They're waiting for something to happen to get their funding so that they would still be considered a new office. So what USCIS, which is the immigration authorities in the U.S., they want to see here is that we have strong financial backing for this new U.S. company. So that can either be via direct investment into the U.S. entity. You got your funding straight into the U.S. entity, which is great. Or sometimes you have a situation, I I see this more often, where the foreign entity is the one that's getting the funding, and they expect that, if that's the case, that the foreign entity will transfer a sufficient amount of funds to the U.S. entity to cover the first-year operating expenses. So that's just like, uh, I guess, an assurance that this company were to give you this chance to ramp yourself up, but we want to see that you're not going to fold tomorrow because you don't have any business activity. A business plan? This is a really annoying requirement, I have to say. And like tech founders just find it really annoying because they're like, why can't I just give like an Excel, like a gift to Gil like, to my investors, like to show what my business plan is. Again, back to 1955, USCIS wants to see an old school business plan with 30 pages long with a market analysis and a five-year hiring forecast and financial forecast and other things that are very specific to an O one new office business plan. It's annoying, but it's, a, it's kind of a one-time thing. Another requirement for a new office is this is this is like absolutely absurd following um, COVID office premises. We will not approve your petition for your founder to go to the United States if you don't submit with this petition, this new office petition, an office lease that shows that there's going to be sufficient physical premises for the founder and all first year employees to to sit at. It's completely counterintuitive, especially in this day and age. But it's an absolute requirement. If you don't show that you have sufficient physical premises, they will not approve the petition. So next question after I tell founders this is, 
does we work work? Does getting a letter from my investor saying I have I have space work? Can I you know, use my CPA's office for that? The answer is yes, but it has to be legit. It has to be legit. It has to be real space available to you. They want to see the square footage. If there are questions about it, they're going to ask for pictures of the workspace and so on and so forth. Another thing that's relates to this office lease requirement is like, all right, I'm a founder and I have a WeWork. Great. But I have all these like salespeople that are going to be working remotely. That's fine. We need to have enough space for you and anyone that's going to sit on site. And then it's able to explain to the immigration authorities that I have salespeople or other people working remotely. Okay, so that works. So the initial approval of a new office for an L1 is valid for one year. So an L1A visa for managers, executives can be extended for a total of seven years, L1B a total of five years. But if you're applying into the new office program, your initial approval is going to be valid for one year. And that is specifically because your new office and USCIS wants to see that you guys are able to ramp up the show and on extension, which comes really fast, that you're actually doing business and that the, the founder is actually functioning in a managerial capacity. And what that means, bottom line, in regular terms, is that you've hired people that are reporting to you in the U.S. We got a question from Yaniv Benhemo. He's the CEO of Memphis. And he was asking, how long does it actually take to get an L1 visa? Good question. Very good question. So the process is as follows. The L1 and the other two visas that we're going to talk about now are petition-based visas. What does that mean? There are two steps to this process. The first step of the process is preparing and submitting a petition to USCIS, the U.S. Immigration Authorities. This is a substantive part of the process. And the second part is visa processing at a U.S. Embassy abroad. Okay, so I'm giving you highlights now of the L1 visa and especially the new offices. It's a ton of paperwork. Okay, it's really quite a lot of paperwork. So I would say end to end this process takes and this is if everything goes like really smooth and includes preparation and submission of the petition and through visa processing, I would say around three months. And that is if the founders and the companies are doing your homework. So we'll send you a list of documents and it's like out the wazoo. And however long it takes you guys to get that together, including the business plan, et cetera, is how long it takes. From my experience, if you step on the gas and get it together in a few weeks or a month, and then the rest of the process from there is about three months in an absolute best case scenario. So that means if we submit the petition to USCIS and they request additional evidence on any of the aspects that relate to the criteria for an L1 visa, that's going to delay you. Another thing that might delay you are as a background and security check at the second stage of the process, the applying for the visa at the embassy. So you need to take those things the question I want to ask you, Jen, is relates to the business plan. If you do this and you you get the visa and you move to the U.S. and your significant other comes with you and they get a job and then the startup fails or you get fired or you get acquired, can you continue to work there or does it all kind of unravel and you have to go back? The L1 is, it's employer specific. Okay. So yeah, that can be a consequence. If your company folds, then you're going to have to find some other visa options to stay in the U.S. If you get acquired, and that's actually a very good question, if you get acquired, because the L1 visa is one of the requirements is that you have this certain legal relationship between the entity where you worked for a year before you transferred and the U.S. entity. So if your company is going to be acquired, I know this is like, maybe it's not realistic, but please while you're doing due diligence with the acquiring company, take into account, do like a survey of who is on a visa here. I've seen situations where like 
huge deals were occurring and they just forgot to take into account what happens to the CEO that's on an L1 visa. And there are certain acquisition formats of acquisition that totally work and that L1 can just be sort of like, you know, amended to have it. The acquiring company can take that over because the relationship between the, the original company that employed you for a year and the U.S. company stayed intact. Okay. But then there are other terms of acquisitions and mergers with companies that don't work. So that's, that's the answer to that. During the due diligence process, founders, if you see this coming, scream at the investors and can I please talk to your immigration counsel about my visa status? And what's your advice on spouses? In other words, is it usual that they ride on the visa of the, of the employee or is it usual that they apply on their own? And is that sometimes advisable? My advice to everyone who is to, together and has multiple visa options is to maximize the options that you have available to you. So oftentimes we'll have a, a couple where, you know, the, the founder is eligible for an L visa and it turns out that the spouse is working for some company that like is able to sponsor their L visa or a different type of visa. It is always good to have options because if something happens to the employment of one of those spouses, assuming that the other spouse allows for work authorization, it's good to have or at a minimum be able to remain in the United States if something happens to your employment. On to H-1B visas. So H-1B visas have historically been referred to as the tech visa simply because there's just really very usage of these of this type of visa by the tech industry. So we're talking Google and Microsoft and all the big ones are just heavy users of the H-1B visa. This is, so it's for specialty occupations. So specialty occupation is an occupation, a position that requires the person to have a specific academic degree, which is a minimum requirement for performing that position. As an example, if you're a software programmer, you might have a BSc degree in computer science or engineering, a degree that's just relevant to, it's a minimum requirement for entry into this position. The H-1B visa, it's just can't really be relied on because it's subject to annual numerical limitations. So there's a cap on these type of visas. There's 65,000 available for the entire world. For people that have a bachelor's degree, there's an extra 20,000, a separate cap of 20,000 for people who have a master's degree from a U.S. institution of higher learning, a master's degree or higher. So people that were on student visas often transition from the student visa to the H-1B visa. It's a little bit problematic because we'll get to that in the alert part. But one of the one of the main things that like people don't like about the H-1B visas, it doesn't allow for spousal work authorization. Spouses and children of H-1B holders get H-4 visas and they can't work. In most cases, there are some cases where they can if the person is in the green card process, but it's beyond the scope of this. A regular person under the cap getting an H-4 visa can't work in the U.S. And is it so, still done via lottery system? Yes, we were getting to that just now. Yeah, it is. So they did change something over the past few years. So it's a lottery and the lottery process transitioned a couple of years ago, thank God, to an electronic registration process. OK, so it's done online. The H-1B lottery opens in March of every year. So relatively simple registration process, really basic information that the U.S. employer has to give about the employee and the company. And then you submit that online registration during the month of March each year. It's open throughout the, the month of March. And if the registration is selected and eventually the petition is approved, you'll have a 90-day period to submit the petition to USCIS. If it's approved, then the employment starts on October 1st because this visa classification goes by the fiscal year. So it's really hard to depend on 
the H-1B visa, it's just hard because let's say you find someone that you want to hire in the U.S. So what are you going to do? Put them off for like a year? Okay, well, submit your H-1B registration now and you'll be able to start in, in October. So I'll go back to the students. This is really a lot of tech companies hire students that are on F-1 visas or J visas and they have a period where they're allowed to, they're allowed to work. It's called OPT, optional practical training. And during that time, they see, they're like, okay, we see that we like this employee. We want to keep them on. So we'll submit an H-1B a petition for them. Uh, so that's popular with positions like that. The H-1B is a little bit difficult for early stage startups sometimes, simply because there are wage requirements. So the U.S. entity that's sponsoring this type of visa is going to have to pay a certain wage. And maybe with cutbacks or whatever reasons that they don't want to pay a certain salary, that can affect whether or not to move forward with it. And also if they're early stage and they're not like generating revenues, then there could be questions by USCIS as to the ability of the company at all to pay that particular wage. Unfortunately, the layoffs over the past year have affected a lot of these folks on H-1B visas. It's unfortunate, but it, from my experience with my clients, they're the first to go. It's usually not the founders that are, are getting laid off, you know, through cutbacks. It's the tech types. So unfortunately, that affects this category. There are grace periods for H visas and LVs and other types of visas. So if you have to lay off folks, they don't have to get up and deport the U.S. immediately, which is, you know, it's helpful for them. So I'm sure you care about your employees. It's just this is, these are times we're in right now. Something that I really like about the H-1B, and we get a ton of these, is there's a portability provision. So that means if, let's say, you want to hire someone, you want to kind of coach someone from a different company, it's relatively easy to do. So if a person already has an H-1B visa, so that means they're cap exempt, they're not subject to the annual cap, they already have it. You, as a tech company in the U.S., you can headhunt them out and go behind the back of the current employer submit an H-1B petition for this individual, and they can actually start working for you even before the petition is approved. So the minute you get the receipt notice, you can, you can hire these people. I don't think it's best practice to put someone on payroll, have them say goodbye to their current employer, and put them on your payroll just on the basis of the receipt notice, simply because you just don't know what's going to happen. USCIS might not approve the petition. There might be a request for evidence, and then you're putting this person in a very precarious situation. That's a best practice tip on, on portability, but it's a, it's a great little, a great little thing to, to utilize in the right situation. How competitive is the lottery? Cause I know it's like changes year to year where it's like some years there's like less than, you know, I think you mentioned 65, some years there's a lot more. Like I remember when I was graduating college, like a bunch of people I knew were getting H1Bs and, and a lot of people didn't get it. Is that still the case where it's like, there's decent odds to not get it? Yeah. So interestingly, during COVID, they actually did a second lottery process and then a third lottery process because they didn't have enough, which is like unheard of. Okay. But that was just um, because of the time that we were in at that time. So they did a second selection and a third selection, which people were just like, they didn't hear from us and they just thought they didn't get selected. And it's like, hey, you got selected, which was awesome. That is so completely and totally not the case right now. It's, it was completely oversubscribed. It's back to mass, mass consumption of H-1Bs. And again, when you have the heavy hitters submitting such an, a huge amount of petitions like the Microsofts and the Googles and all the big, the big guys, there's just not much left for, for regular folks. So unfortunately, that's the case. Obviously, your chances are a lot higher if you're applying under the master's cap. 
under that 20,000 for people that have a master's in, from a U.S. institution of higher learning. A little bit about extraordinary ability, O-1 visas, and specifically O-1A visas. There's an O-1A for people of extraordinary ability in science, education, business, athletic, and then there's an O-1B for artists. But I want to just focus on the O-1A because this is, this is what relevant to founders. So a person needs to be coming to work in the United States. This is petition also, two-step, just like the L-1 and the H. So the first step is submitting a petition to the U.S. Immigration. The second step is applying for a visa at the U.S. Embassy. The person needs to be coming to work in their field of endeavor. So let's just, for the sake of, of this example, let's just say, so someone who's, uh, you know, just like an, an expert in cybersecurity, they need to meet three out of eight criteria to demonstrate that they actually have this extraordinary ability. They're super duper experts in their field by sustained national or international acclaim. To put this in really like layman's terms, this is somebody who is at the absolute, the top of their field. If you Google this person, you're going to see that they have founded companies in their field of endeavor. Again, for the sake of the example, cybersecurity companies, they've had multiple investments by a VC investment, which is considered an award, by the way. They have written patents. They've written articles, scholarly articles. Things have been written about them in the press and the media about their company and how great they're doing. Perhaps their company has won awards. They're members of association that require a very high level of their members. So you really need to be an expert in that field to get into that particular association. For Israelis, that could be just, for example, they served in an, an elite cybersecurity unit, uh, like 8200 in the military, but it's absolutely not limited to that. It could be other types of professional associations. So basically, I say that a good O1 condition can basically be written just by the information that is gleaned online about this individual. The nice part about the O1 is that you don't need any prior uh, employment abroad. In fact, you don't even have to have an entity abroad. You can just have set up your company like yesterday and that the company sponsors the Owen visa. Unlike the L1, you don't need to show like a huge amount of funding. This is an important point. So if the founder opens the U.S. entity that's sponsoring this O1 and they're a significant shareholder in the company, we need to show that the company is doing business, okay, by showing that all the incorporation stuff, but also that there's engagements with customers and agreements and that you've got employees and stuff like that, because we want to avoid a situation where USCIS thinks that you've opened this company in the United States just to transfer yourself over there. The hard part about this, it's a heavy lifting file, okay? And it puts a lot of strain. I like it, but it's a lot of homework for the founder themselves. Whereas the other types of visas that we talked about, the L and the H, the company ha handles most of the documentation that's involved here. Now, this is more of a personal type of, of thing. And one of the things that you need to do is chase around experts in the industry that know you and that have worked with you, such as Gil Dibner, okay? It's very common to get protect founders, to get affidavits from investors. To give you these affidavits, say, we invested in your company because you have this particular track record, and so on and so forth. Great option. It unfortunately does not allow for spousal work authorization. So, you know, that can be a go-no-go, -go, like I said. And another thing about the, did you want to ask something, Gil? Sorry. The question I was going to ask is how does this O-1 visa play into most startup journeys? Because given what you've described, it's harder. It doesn't give you spousal work authorization. And the other one you were talking about, the intercompany transfer one, seems to apply to almost every startup. So why would you ever do an O-1? Can you well, help us understand how to think about that? Yup. And it's a really simple answer also. You guys are in a huge rush, okay? You're in a huge rush and you don't want to wait, always want to wait until you have that 12 months 
of employment at the foreign entity. Okay. They're in a rush. And folks that are in a rush, they oftentimes go down this route. They're willing to put in that extra effort right now to do it. Being single might, might also be a, a factor in the decision-making process of what kind of visa, but the simple answer is that folks are in a rush and they don't want to wait for the 12 months. I, again, I think it's a great visa. Unlike the L and the H, it's not, as I didn't, sorry, I didn't mention that the H, when we tied that over on the previous slide, it's extendable for up to six years. The L1A, seven years, as I mentioned. Here, the initial approval is for three years and it can be extended indefinitely. So that might also be a factor in the decision-making process. And is the a one, is it tied to the company? Or if, say, you get fired or if the company shuts down, can you still stay? Okay, so this is a great question also. It is employer-specific. However, you can change employers here. So another company can sponsor, on, you, you can do a change of employer for an O-1. Is the L-1 like more technical and this is more of a, a risk? The thing is, all of these petitions are discretionary. and. I just think that deciding who really is at the top of their field is even more discretionary than deciding if a person was working in a managerial capacity before they moved and if they're going to be in a managerial capacity after they move, like like with the L. So I wouldn't say it's a crapshoot, but it's a heavier lifting kind of thing. But on the L, you don't have those nasty documentary requirements with the O1 that you do with the L. It's a boatload of documentation on the L where you have to document all of the incorporation and the financial documentation and the, the investments and the employees and so forth for two companies within the scope of the L. So here we have it much, much less documentation on the company end. Another thing that I'm not in love with, with the O-1 is that just the path to green card is, it's not as smooth with an O visa. One of the common myths is that I need to be on a certain type of a visa in order to qualify for a certain type of employment-based green card. It's not true, but at the same time, there's a, a certain natural path that you have, there are parallel green card categories to, to different visa categories. So you have the L1 intercompany transfer, and then the parallel category to that would be the EB1 multinational manager executive. So if you start with an L1 visa, that doesn't mean you don't necessarily qualify as a multinational manager or executive for green card purposes. But one of the requirements for that type of green card is that you have worked for 12 months at the employer, at the foreign employer. And if you're starting out with an O-1, then you probably don't have that. You probably don't meet that, that criteria. Another thing that bothers me about the O when, we're, when you get into the green card process, and that's regardless of which category you go down for the green card process, there is one for extraordinary ability. It's very parallel to the O-1. If you're planning on adjusting your status from a non-immigrant, a visa holder, to an immigrant while you're in the U.S. through a process called adjustment of status, that means in, in effect, bottom line, it means you're doing the whole process in the U.S. and you don't have to go back to your home country to apply for your immigrant visa. There are travel restrictions when you're going off of an O-1 that you don't have with an L or an H visa. So the L and the H are great because you get to hold on to those visas during your whole green card process, okay, if you're doing it via adjustment. With the O-1, you could be grounded in the United States. You need to be physically present in the United States when that adjustment of status green card process was going on, and you're going to be dependent on work and travel authorization that are benefits of the green card process. And you just have to sit there and wait through long processing times, like six, seven, eight months. Now, that does not jive for founders, not anyone that I know. They are traveling constantly, and they don't want to be grounded there in the U.S. And what if something happens? It's an uncomfortable situation for everyone. So that's another reason why I don't love the O-1. But 
I know there are people out there that hold their ones and they're like, it's great for me. And that's fine too. We can do it. It's just not as comfortable as an L or flexible. We have a bunch of questions and we only have 10 minutes. So we'll try to do these kind of rapid fires. One question that was intriguing. We got a question from Sylvester in the UK. And his, his question is, can you advise on the appropriate visa or immigration pathway for a British founder seeking cooperation with the US Space Force and Department of Defense? There's the, the broader question is, does the industry you're operating and have any impact on this process? I believe there's for H visa, something specific to the Department of Defense if you're working on a project. And, and um, Buster, I can talk to you about that separately. But the simple answer is no, it doesn't matter what the industry because the requirements of the visa are the, re- the requirements for the visa. So I don't think that there's anything specific to the industry, but there are visas that do have to do with the nationality of the of the, the companies and the founders. Um, we have really quickly another question from Johannes. By the way, Johannes, which country are you in? Hi there, I'm from uh, Belgium. The question I'm having is, is there a strategy to apply if you were on a visa before? My specific case, I was on an O1 a couple of years ago. Uh, I came back founded a new company and will come back to the U.S. And I was wondering, is there any advice? Sh- sh- should I go for an O1 again? Or doesn't it matter that, that I had an O1 before and just follow the procedures like anybody else? So Johannes, did you, you founded a new company. So does that company, did you work when you came back? Did you have, the, have a company in Belgium that you started or you came back and then you just founded a new U.S. entity? So I was working for an American company on my own one. They sponsored the visa. Mm-hmm. And then I went back, did a couple of other things and founded a new Belgian company. And we're now looking at expanding into the U.S. Once you have 12 months on the Belgian payroll, I assume that the companies are related. So you're, you're planning on like maybe opening up a U.S. subsidiary? Yes. And we're three years old and we have activities. So the 12 months is not an issue. A hundred percent. Hands down, go with the L1. It's going to be the most comfortable, stable, and flexible option for you. You can do it under the new office program when you activate your new company, and you'll see that it's going to be a smooth pathway for you. Now, if for whatever reason, and I know I don't have a crystal ball, and at the end of the day, it's discretionary. The visas are going to get approved or not. This is going to be approved. But whatever happens, you you can't get that L1. It doesn't sound to me like that's going to be the case. But let's just say it doesn't happen. It's always good to know that you have a case. For O1 that's been approved because extraordinary ability is not something that that changes. It's only built upon further. And one of the requirements is you've got sustained extraordinary ability. So the chunk of your O1, it's already been it's already been done. And so if you have to go down that path again, it's just going to be updating it, just showing what great other great things you did since you got that O1. And your new U.S. entity can, of course, sponsor it. So you've got two different options there. But definitely, if you have the option between the two, start with the O1. Okay, great. I know we're short on time, guys, and I'm really going to zip through these e-visas really fast. Okay, so up until now, the types of visas that we talked about were petition-based. So it was the two-step. Submit a petition to USCIS, go and apply for a visa at the U.S. Embassy. The e-visa universe, and it's a consular application. So that means you're going to submit, you're preparing to submit an application to directly to the U.S. Embassy, and they have full adjudication over this. So it's not just, I'm going to apply for the visa stamp, as in the other case. This is a substantive thing. The United States has treaties of trade, commerce, and friendship with a number of treaty countries. Lots of European countries, Israel, tons of countries. We'll call them the treaty countries for the sake of the discussion. So e-visas are actually a status that companies get. Okay, so a company can hold e-status. It's like a blanket status. 
And once they have that status, they can transfer managers, executives, people with essential skills to the U.S. It's a good thing to have because you can get people over there really fast. Now, here's the part that does not work for tech companies. And I'm telling you guys, it doesn't work. And remember saying this and don't, if you're on e-visas now, just don't get freaked out by it, but please bear it in mind, okay? The company, the e-visa enterprise must be majority owned by nationals of the treaty country, at least 50%. This goes for E1s and E2s, which we'll talk about in a second. But that means that ultimately, these companies will be ultimately owned, okay, by nationals of the treaty country. And when I talk about the founder alert stuff, I'm going to explain why that's difficult for tech companies specifically, okay? E1 visa, really briefly, a company must have substantial international trade with the United States, so at least 50.1%. So just make it really simple. Your company, you're looking at all of your international trade, all of your imports and all of your exports. You're not looking at anything domestic. You're taking that total and you're saying, is 50% of that between my home country, the treaty country, and the United States for the past year? E2, this is an investor visa. So either a company or an individual person can be an investor. But for the sake of our discussion, we're going to talk about a, a company that makes a substantial investment into a new or existing U.S. entity. Typical scenario, I have a company abroad, I'm opening up a U.S. subsidiary, and I'm investing in it, okay? How much do I need to invest? If it's a brand new company, then the investment amount was going to be considered substantial or all of the startup costs involved in activating this entity. I can tell you right now, it's never a problem for tech companies that are well-funded because this is the plan anyway. They're opening an entity, they're going to invest in it. So every cent that you invest in that company goes into it. If you get office space and pay up for a year in advance, that goes up to it. You can transfer a sum of money from the foreign company to the U.S. company. And as long as you're spending it, it's not enough just to transfer a lump sum, but you need to start spending against it. So you're hiring consultants, you're getting office equipment, anything goes into that investment. It's really never a problem. And you can also purchase a, an existing entity. And then if you're doing that, then the substantial amount has to do with the fair market value of the company that you're purchasing. So the more you invest toward that for, well, fair market value, the proportionality test, then your investment is considered substantial. Both e-visas allow for spousal work authorization. So that's a good thing. Here we go. This is the main problem for tech companies and why I absolutely do not recommend them unless it's a last ditch and it's going to be a temporary thing and we have another plan for you later. Okay. You have to maintain that 50% in nationality of the treaty country. So you guys are getting investments all the time. Gil Dibner, if he were investing in a European company, he's actually, he's considered American because he holds dual U.S. and Israeli citizenship. So we couldn't count him. Okay. So you're getting investors. It's watering down but that the, 50%. The, the fund entities are American anyway. It doesn't matter what my nationality is. It matters. The entity that's yeah, but the beneficial you're the beneficial owner. You're the beneficial no, owner. No, wouldn't There's, it? I'm not as the LPs. The LPs themselves become. They're going to strip all that down, girl. You know, strip it down, and they're going to. At the end of the day, I'm looking for individuals. They're looking for individuals, and you, yeah, yeah you want to be considered it. But regardless of Gil's situation, tech companies it's just not the nature of how you guys roll. You're always getting foreign investments, and a lot of those investments are American or whatever. And once you lose that 50% at any time, so let's just say today, both founders hold 50% or whatever it is, and they both have the nationality of that treaty country. Wonderful. I got my e-visa. I got this. The company is approved. I got people on visas over there. Great and wonderful. And then tomorrow, you get a foreign investment. Okay, well, my visa is facially valid, except my company no longer meets that 50% 
nationality requirements and in effect, your visas are no longer valid and you're going to have to depart the United States before this actually happens. Okay, so it's just one of those things. It just doesn't make it attractive for tech companies. I like e-visas for like hardcore, like production, manufacturing companies that ownership does not, their cap tables don't change as much. Another good thing about it is that prior employment with the approved company is not needed. On like the L1, you don't need that 12 months. Any employees that you want to send over on e-visas, they obviously have to hold the nationality of the treaty country. For E1s, so we were, we're talking about international trade, we're talking about multiple transactions over time, not one ginormous invoice that was paid between your foreign company and U.S. company. So we're talking about multiple transactions. I get asked a lot, and especially this is really prevalent with tech companies, does cost plus and like intercompany services qualify as tribute? Because oftentimes you'll have your foreign entity, your U.S. entity, and one entity is either giving R&D services to the other, or one's giving sales and marketing services to the other. Does that work? Does that like, you know, work for like qualifying trade, transfer pricing, and so on? The answer is yes, yes. However, we want to see, again, multiple transactions over time. So you're either paying, you're issuing an invoice and paying quarterly or every month or whatever. Of course, it, it needs to be in substantial figures at the end of the 12-month period. And another point, thing that's really important here is if you're basing your trade on intercompany services, intercompany trade solely, we want to show that the U.S. entity has a follow-through and is selling to customers in the United States. So you're not just like trading with yourselves. For E2, funds must be irrevocably committed. So that means this investment, and believe me, I believe it or not, I actually hear this. Can we just transfer the money over for the like E2 and then like take it back? It's like, no, you can't. You actually have to show spending for the ETO investment, again, just throwing over a lump sum of a million dollars and not doing anything with those funds does not work for an E2. Um, and the company needs to be real and operating, doing business and so on. So if this is a brand new entity that you're establishing in the U.S., I recommend strongly that it's a chicken and egg thing, like try to show that I'm real and operating, but other reason I'm not over there, that you guys get together either some consultants or hire some U.S. employees. This is really important. This is the console wants to see that there is a, a contribution to the U.S. labor market here, get some employees together, some consultants, some people can actually start doing work. If you can submit the E2 to the embassy with some contracts, even some pilot stuff, whatever, show that you're real and operating, your chances of getting an E2 approval are going to go up. And that concludes my lecture for the day. I think we are over time, but Jen, thank you so much. You've just shown us both that this is more complicated and less obvious than some people might think, and that you're the OG when it comes to this stuff. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it and hope to see you soon. Anne and Gil, thank you guys so much. And thanks for everyone in the audience that participated. Please do feel free to reach out to me directly if you guys have any questions.